When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. If you save a ladybug's life, you'll be rewarded with as many years of good luck as there are spots on its back. It's an old German myth. It's cute though, right? Save an innocent creature and enjoy a few years of good fortune. The problem with good luck is that it's relative. For some, good means winning the lottery, finding a long-lost family heirloom in the attic, or even catching the bus just in time. For others, it could mean being the only survivor of a car crash, having a bullet miss their brain by half an inch, or only getting first-degree burns over half their body. I was part of that second group. There I was, bleeding out in an alley in Buffalo, New York. It was so far from how I pictured my death, not that I thought about that kind of thing often. I just always figured I'd die of old age in a rocking chair, as opposed to being sprawled out on the ground with a stab wound, or tin, to the abdomen and tasting the pavement between two dumpsters. That's what you get for trying to stand up to a pair of muggers. I definitely wouldn't recommend it, but I'm sure you don't need to tell me that being a human pincushion hurts like a bitch. Because like I said, there I was, alone, frightened, and bleeding to death. That's when I saw an upturned ladybug in a puddle of water by my head. I probably should have been contemplating my own mortality or watching the best of Rio going through my mind, but instead, I was staring at this little creature desperately clinging to life and its thrashing little legs around pointlessly. In any other situation, I wouldn't have even noticed the poor thing. One less bug in the world, who cares, right? I'd love to say something beautifully poetic, like, I saw a bit of myself in the bug. We were both lost souls who'd been forgotten by the world. Perhaps if I saved it, I'd redeem all my past misdeeds and die in peace. But that would all be a lie. Heck, saving the ladybug's life wasn't even on my mind when I used the last of my strength to bring my arm forward. I was trying to crawl out of that alley. The fact that my hand landed right next to her was pure coincidence. With her stick-like appendages, she clung to my finger, managed to pull herself out of the water, and began crawling towards my face. Do you know what I thought of in that accidentally heroic moment? I hope she doesn't fly into my mouth. That'd be gross. Look, dying makes your mind go to really weird places. 
I went cross-eyed, looking at her blood-red shell as she inched closer and closer to my face. I managed to count up to twelve spots on her back. Twelve spots before the world turned black, leaving me with nothing but the sound of the ladybug skittering up the bridge of my nose. The next thing I knew, I could hear the distant sound of a heart rate monitor. I'm alive, I remember thinking. But then, the beeping got louder and faster than an enraged goose honking at a cyclist. I'm dying? My eyes shot open in a panic. The white walls and neon lights that surrounded me caused them to sting as they struggled to adjust. When they finally did, I noticed a mass of people huddled over the bed next to mine frantically trying to revive whoever was in it. My own heart monitor was beeping calmly. It took the hospital staff an eternity to notice I was awake with all the action that was going on in the bed next to mine. I couldn't blame them. I mean, they were dealing with someone croaking. Saving a dude's life was a little bit more important than giving me a welcome-to-the-hospital orientation session. That said, I was freaking out a little bit and would have appreciated a word or two. See... I wasn't entirely sure why I was lying in a hospital bed. I didn't have full-blown amnesia or anything weird like that. You know when you wake up groggy and you can't remember if it's Sunday or Monday? It was kind of like that, but worsened by the trauma and sweet, sweet drugs coursing through my veins. As I sat there, I noticed the bouquet of balloons tied to the dying man's bed. He must have had over... Two dozen in varying shapes, sizes, and colors. There was even a balloon that read, It's a boy, though I'm fairly certain, judging by the guy's age, that it was meant to be a joke. One of the balloons hanging just over a flower-shaped creation caught my attention. It was a foil ladybug that seemed to glimmer in the light. The familiar form jogged my memory enough to recall my stent in the alley. The mere thought of this stab wound made the pain in my abdomen flare up. By the time the doctors and nurses were done with the patient, I think they'd all forgotten I was supposed to be unconscious because they didn't seem particularly interested in talking to me. I had to draw their attention as they were exiting the room. A doctor and nurse stayed behind to answer my questions and give me a quick checkup. I'll never forget what that nurse said when I asked about how I got to the hospital. You're lucky a doctor was walking by and found you in that alley. (laughs) You almost died. It wasn't the circumstances around my discovery that bothered me, but rather the word she used to describe it. Luck. If she thought there was anything fortunate about being mugged and then stabbed, then she and I had a very different definition of luck. Told you earlier, didn't I? Luck is relative. If you give good luck to someone who just won a scratch ticket, they start off with a pretty good baseline. Everything that happens to that person will be as good, if not better, than winning a scratch ticket. If you take someone who was at death's door and was only noticed by a doctor because their arm was sticking out from behind a dumpster, then you've got a completely different, much less favorable baseline. I would have given anything to be the person who'd won a scratch ticket instead. It's not like in the movies, you know. When you get injured, you don't just get swabbed a little cotton ball and sent on your way. Even though the knife missed my vital organs, I was still in for months of recovery. To make matters worse, I was let go from my job for needing to take so much time off. 
My girlfriend of three years didn't seem particularly pleased with the turn of events either. Within a few weeks of coming back to the hospital, she left me to rot in our dingy old apartment. Instead of giving me words of sympathy, do you know what the people said when they found out? You were lucky you lost your job. The company just filed for bankruptcy. At least you got a severance package. You were lucky your girlfriend left you. She was just a gold digger. Lucky. Right. I had 12 more years of this good luck ahead of me. It probably won't come as a shock to you to find out that I turned to narcotics to make myself feel better. It wasn't entirely my fault. I had to take meds after getting, you know, stabbed and everything, which caused me to form a physical dependency. And all the emotional mumbo-jumbo to that, and you've got a recipe for prescription pill abuse. And boy, was it easy to get my hands on the stuff. I just had to go to a pain clinic, tell the doctor I was having back trouble, and I received a shiny new prescription. The doc and I both knew I didn't need it, but neither of us cared. Another bottle, another few weeks of carefree numbness. Made it hard to hold a job, but I didn't care anymore. It was hard to find the will to live when it felt like I was already dead inside. I realize that sounds really melodramatic when I say it now, like a line taken straight out of a shitty punk rock album, but that's how I felt at the time. And then I had a bit of an incident with the snowblower. It had been snowing nonstop for almost 24 hours, and the driveway desperately needed clearing. I decided to take care of it, but halfway through the job, the snowblower stopped working. Cold, frustrated, and high off my rocker, and eager to get back inside, I stomped to the front and gave the machine a firm kick. I deserve a Darwin Award for that one. I'll spare you the gory details, but needless to say, I managed to dislodge a chunk of ice stuck in the gears and got something else caught in its place. I screamed in agony as the blades chewed through my boots. Thankfully, I managed to twist myself loose and lay in a snowbank. As I lay there, I heard a skittering sound coming from the road. It sounded just like the ladybug from the alley. I looked toward the street only to see a little red Volkswagen Beetle puttering by. The driver stopped, put my severed toes in a Ziploc bag full of snow, and drove me to the ER. What did the doctor say to ease my woes? You were lucky it was cold enough to preserve your toes. We managed to save and reattach a few. I was really getting tired of people telling me how lucky I was. Things only got worse as time went on. Lost my car, my apartment, and downgraded from prescription pills to hard drugs. Life was absolutely miserable. And all I could do was to try and escape it by any means, even if that meant spending almost every day in a narcotic-induced haze. Spend years as a miserable drug zombie scrounging what I could to make a buck so I could get a hit. Took something bad one day, not on purpose, mind you. Figure it must have been laced with something, or maybe the opposite. Maybe it was too pure. All I know was that it was the worst trip I'd ever experienced in my entire life. You know the feeling you get when the roller coaster drops over the first hill? Imagine that stomach-turning sensation non-stop. 
I could feel my heart racing uncontrollably, my body trembling. I had absolutely no control. It felt as though bugs were crawling on and under my skin as I thrashed wildly. It got so bad that I hallucinated millions of ladybugs lifting me up and pulling me out of the drug den. I could hear their army of little feet scurrying in unison in an effort to get me to safety. The sound was awful. As though someone had opened the doors to an auditorium full of chatting people, it echoed loudly in my head, causing me to feel ill. An employee of the Ladybug Daycare found me on the front steps covered in my own vomit. I can only vaguely recall the sound of sirens as I was rushed to the hospital. They had to pump my stomach with charcoal. It was not a fun experience. You were lucky somebody found you on time. You almost overdosed. What followed was a mandatory 72-hour hold and a lift to a rehab facility. The thing about rehab is you kind of have to want to get better, otherwise it doesn't work. They can force you to detox. They can force you to sit around in a support group. Hell, they can even force you to make promises you never intend to keep. All that counts for nothing if you don't want to be helped. At first, I treated my time there as nothing but an opportunity to sleep in a warm bed and enjoy a good meal. As the weeks wore on, however, I started to immerse myself in the treatment program. I wanted to get better, to get back on my feet. It took a few rocky years and several relapses, but I eventually managed to kick the drug habit. Life had finally calmed down a little. I got into construction, kept my head down, and did my work without complaint. Things were going well. You know what they say, when things are too good to be true, they often are. I was working on a fixer-upper, a rundown office building that needed serious work. The moron on the roof got our pulleys cord caught on the window ledge. I reluctantly walked over to free it. Just as my foot was about to hit the ground, I heard that noise again familiar sound of skittering feet. I looked down and saw a ladybug crawling around in circles on the floor. I should have stomped it to death considering all the hardship I'd faced because of its kin. But no. I stepped aside instead. Suddenly, the concrete floor caved in. I felt myself fall all three stories to the ground and heard a violent snap as I landed. When I came to, I couldn't move or even feel my legs. I looked around to get my bearings and saw a large metal rod to my left right about where the ladybug had been walking, right where I would have landed if I hadn't moved to avoid the critter. I'm sure you know by now what my friends and doctors said. You're lucky you made it out with nothing but a spinal injury. People usually don't survive a fall from that height. Lucky. Fucking lucky. When I woke up this morning, I was excited to see the date on the calendar. It had been exactly 12 years to the day that I'd saved that damn ladybug, and I couldn't help but feel relieved. I wasn't going to be stuck with my cursed good luck anymore. It was time to face whatever fate it had to dish out. As I was rolling out of my room, my wheelchair caught on the side dresser, sending a mirror crashing to the ground. The sound it made when the glass shattered brought goosebumps to my skin. 
I swear, the broken shards sounded just like millions of little feet as they tumbled across the floor. I've had 12 years of good luck in that time. Managed to lose my job, my family, my self-control, and most recently the use of my legs. I became a sort of recovering addict with nothing to live for. I'm not sure I can survive seven years of bad luck. I don't like to be away from home. I was diagnosed with severe agoraphobia when I was 25, and for years I tried to overcome it. My father was still alive then, and he would always encourage me to go to therapy and slowly push my boundaries. My primary triggers are open spaces and crowds of people, so if someone sees my house, they often joke about how it's in the middle of an open field. That's by design. My father built this house for me, you see and it has views to a wide open world while still having walls to keep me safe. It has a good sized backyard and garden, but it's all enclosed in a 10 foot wooden fence so I don't feel exposed when I'm out in the sunshine. He always said that he wanted me to have a place I could love now, but when I was ready, I could also use it as a jumping off point to a much wider world. All I had to do was step out of my front door. He died two years ago. For the first six months after his death, I actually went out more, driven by the idea of making him proud, but over time, any sense of pride or duty were smothered by my fear and grief. It became easier to just avoid the world and sink into the stillness of my quiet little life. Not that my life is bad, it isn't, it's the point of telling you this isn't to make you feel sorry for me. My father left me very comfortable financially, and I'm lucky enough to have an online document review job I can do from home. I'm healthy, fairly happy, and I have friends that come and visit me often. I also have a wonderful two-year-old cat named Tibbers. My friend Alicia brought him to me a couple of months after my father passed away, and initially I was hesitant to the idea. I like animals, but I've never had a cat before. It wasn't until that first night that I knew I was going to keep him. I'd set up a box for him in the bathroom with high enough walls and enough weight in the bathroom that I thought he couldn't run or jump or tip over it. He cried for a while, but I tried ignoring it. figured it was best to let him tire it out and go to sleep, and that seemed to work. The pitiful mewling from the bathroom tapered off, and I finally felt myself drifting to sleep. I woke some time later to a warm pressure against my side. I slept on my stomach usually, and as I reached back, I felt the kitten's small, furry body draped against me, his front paws and head on my back with his bottom half resting on the bed. As I touched him, I felt a sleepy purr rumble through my fingertips and ribs. <laughs> that's when I knew I loved him. Most nights, that's still how Tibbers sleeps, at least part of the night. He'll prowl around too, of course, but before the night is over, I usually find him propped in that odd, half-sitting, half-laying position against me, fast asleep. That's why two nights ago, I didn't think anything when I felt weight settling against my side. I drifted back off contentedly, and it was some time later when I reached down to pet Tibbers. Instead of soft fur, I felt something hard and semi-rigid. 
quickly woke up, but in those first couple of seconds of coming out of the fog of sleep, I felt ridges and small spiky protrusions and spots. I let out a scream and fumbled for the light on the nightstand, screaming again at what was illuminated. My sheets had a small pool of blood on them, and it was easy to see from the wound on my side where it had come from. Something had been biting me or sucking on my side, and as I jumped from the bed, I saw it move under the sheets away from me. Tivers had come running into the room from some nighttime exploration at the commotion I'd made, and he saw it too. The shape darted back and forth as though not sure which way to go, and that hesitation gave Tivers the time he needed to jump on the bed and try and catch it. I felt my heart leap with hope and fear as he swatted at the shape, but it was too fast. Shooting off the bed and onto the floor, I caught a glimpse of it then. Molted brown skin that seemed to glisten and its shape that reminded me of some prehistoric creature. I looked up later and from the brief look I got, it's similar to a trilobite. But at the time, I was more concerned with killing it. I kept a baseball bat in the corner of my room, and I reached for it even as I saw with dread where it was heading. I grabbed the bat and flung it toward the air vent, trying to reroute it, but my aim was bad and the creature was undeterred. It seemed too wide and too thick to fit through the vent slats, but somehow it did, and it was gone. Tibbers went into the vent and peered down, giving a frustrated meow before looking back at me. I grabbed a flashlight from the kitchen and shined light down into the vent, but saw no sign of the thing. After a few seconds of listening for movement with no results, I gave up and went to the bathroom to look at my wound. There was still blood on my side and my pajama shirt, but somehow the wound itself was gone. I considered if I had just been mistaken in my sleepiness and panic, but I knew I seen a round bite mark about the size of a dime. I shuddered, remembering it, and I knew the memory was corroborated by the blood on me and on the bed. Still, there was little more I could do for it now, so I washed off the blood, wiped down my side with antiseptic, and started patrolling the house for other signs of the creature. I found none, but there was no way I was going back to sleep, so ultimately I closed all the vents and sat in my living room with the lights on until... It was late enough in the morning that I could call a pest control company. The pest guy came out later that morning, and I described in vague terms seeing some kind of animal, but I wasn't sure what it had, and it had headed into the vents. I stressed that I needed them to check everything from top to bottom and get rid of it. The older man nodded jovially, telling me it was likely a field mouse and that he would track it down or at least find the way it had gotten in. Four hours later, he'd patched two holes in my ductwork, said he saw no signs of any pests other than a few spiders under the house. He laughed, saying that this was one of the cleanest houses he'd ever seen, top to bottom, and he had no problem declaring it pest-free. I knew he was patronizing me, but I think it was well-meant, as he could tell how worried I was. My hope was that whatever that this thing had been, it was gone and couldn't come back. After the pest guy was gone, I decided to take a long bath to try and relax. I'd been in the water for only a few minutes when I felt a sharp pain in my side. It was the same spot where the bike mark had been. Sitting up in the tub, I felt the spot on the skin was unbroken, but it was sore to the touch. As I ran my fingers over it a second time, I felt something beneath my skin move. I stifled a scream, feeling sure it was my imagination or muscle spasm. 
I stood up and went dripping to the mirror so I could get a better view of my side. I rubbed the spot again, but nothing happened. Again, and still nothing. I was about to give up when I saw a ripple pass across my flesh as something shifted underneath. This time I did scream. I called Alicia, frantic and crying, and within an hour she was there and taking me to the doctor's office. I kept my eyes closed most of the way there, Alicia rubbing my shoulder and trying to get me to calm down. The only benefit to the state I was in was that I couldn't get in a panic about the traveling or the people when I was in a panic already. My regular general practitioner wasn't in, so I saw a pleasant-looking woman in her fifties instead. She listened to what I told her, though Alicia had not seen any sign of it moving herself, so she was having to recount what I told her when I got too upset. Between the two of us, we got enough across for the doctor to look concerned and start physically examining my side. She gave no indications of what she thought, but said she wanted to get x-rays and blood work. Two hours later, and she said there was no sign of anything showing up in imaging, and initial blood work showed no sign of an infection. She would call after the more detailed labs came back, and if I continued having problems, she could order an MRI in a few days. But, she said in the measured tones, keep in mind that it might be anxiety-related or otherwise psychosemantic. I'm not crazy. She shook her head. I know that. I'm not saying you are, but the mind and the body are connected, and if you had a bad dream that stressed you out, your body can react to it in strange ways. Just keep it in mind as an option. The ride back to my house was a quiet one. She would never say it, but I could tell Alicia thought it was in my head. When she dropped me off, she offered to stay a while, but I told her I just needed to rest. In truth, while I was grateful for her help, I was hurt that she didn't really believe me, and I did need some peace and quiet after the commotion of the last day. The problem is now that I jump at every sound. I don't know if the creature is hiding somewhere in the house or is going to come back. I don't know what it did to me, but I can still feel something moving on the inside. And Tibbers won't come around me anymore. When I go near him, he hisses and runs. The first time it happened, I cried a bit, but now I think I understand. This morning, when I woke up, I heard a soft singing. At first, I thought the radio was accidentally playing music, but at a glance at my nightstand showed that it was inert and silent. No, the singing was coming from somewhere else. I stood up slowly trying to pinpoint it. After moving around a bit, I knew it always stayed with me. And that it was coming from me. It was my side. I could hear faint music coming from where that thing attached itself to me. Since I realized that, I've mainly been sitting and staring out the window. I don't know that there's a place for me out there. In this house, my world feels alien and unsafe now. Even my own body seems foreign and hostile. But I hear the singing clearer now, from my side, but in my head now, too. It washes against me like cool waves. Calming me, yeah, but taking parts of me with it as it rolls away, back into some unknown sea. I feel like sand crumbling and dissolving against a rising tide. 
I've written all this because I can feel myself fading more and more, feel myself caring less that it's happening as the music in my head begins to swell. I think I may go outside after all, in just a little while, after I finish listening to this song. I'm here to discuss my experiences with a band known as Vanta Black. They're a progressive death metal band based in my hometown of Battered Grove, a small but lively town in New England. The band consists of five members, a drummer, two guitarists, a bassist, and a vocalist. Beyond their roles in the band, I know very little about them. They've exclusively played shows in my hometown venue since they formed a few months ago. Nowhere else, but I've never seen them in town before. I still don't. I don't even know their names. The band and its members are shrouded in mystery. The only thing I'm certain of is what I've witnessed. Before we get into the details of what I've experienced, let's talk about Battered Grove's local music scene. The bands here and in surrounding towns are predominantly metal, or at least metal in some forms. Their genres range from extreme metal, death metal, and black metal to metalcore, deathcore, and even grindcore. If you aren't familiar with these genres, don't worry. It's not important to understand the context of my situation. I'm just trying to paint a clear picture for those who are familiar. These bands played our local venue, Garrett's Locker. It's a small, rundown place, but it's ours. A great place for kids to have fun, and I go there every chance I get. Watching bands, in addition to moshing, is a great stress reliever. But it's more than that. Being at a metal show is a thrilling experience. The environment is positive, the people are friendly, for the most part. Occasionally there's a moron who likes to crowd kill every chance they get. And the music is phenomenal. It's a heavenly assault on the ears and alleviating comfort to the soul. There's nothing like it. In more recent years, financial issues have led the venue owners to allow in touring bands. These bands have bigger draw than locals, and more people equals more money. There's nothing wrong with keeping your head above water, especially when it means saving the place, but I miss when the venue was ours, and only ours. It was like a secret club, almost like a place for local musicians only. Our escape from the day-to-day troubles of the world. I mean, it is still all of that, but the touring bands bring fans with them that just don't give a shit. Seeing girls, I care more about who's cuter rather than the actual quality of the material. I'm not judging, I'm just... I miss the old crowd. One day, I noticed an invite on Facebook to an event page for Garrett's Locker. It was a show, but not just any show. It was a, quote, all-local metal fest jamboree, as it said on the page. All locals, huh? I was intrigued. I hadn't been to a show at Garrett's with all my local bands in years. This was great, I thought. I looked at the lineup to see who was playing, recognized every band on the bill, save for one. Vanta Black. They must have been new, I thought, but the local bands were almost always openers. Vanta Black was headlining the event. I found this very odd, but... I assumed they paid their promoter for the spot or something. Things like that happen occasionally. Rarely, but 
they happened. I figured this must have been one of those times. Fast forward to the day of the show, and my friend Billy and I showed up early as we usually did. We always loved to hang out in front of the venue for a while before the show started. It gave us a chance to meet friends and meet some new bands during the load-in. We already knew all the members in these bands, having seen them play for years. Instead of a meet and greet, it was more like a family reunion. But at every family reunion, there was always new relatives to meet. You know, those cousins you never had? That was Vanta Black. While talking with the lead singer of my favorite local band, a bus pulled up. Thinking it was an actual bus using the parking lot to turn around, everyone got out of the way. Instead of turning around, it parked. That's when I noticed the lettering on the side of the bus. V.B. That's when I knew that it belonged to Vanta Black. This was a surprise. No local band or even touring band had ever showed up to Garrett's with a bus. It was always either multiple cars, a couple of pickup trucks, an SUV, or a van. Having an actual tour bus was impressive, especially for a local band. This, coupled with the fact that no one else knew anything about the band either, caused everyone to stare. We were waiting to put a face to the name, so to speak. We were waiting for the big reveal. With equipment in hand, five cloaked figures came off the bus in an orderly fashion and walked into Garrett's. When I say cloaked, I mean cloaked, hood and all. I couldn't even make out a single face. Strange is an understatement. It was downright bizarre. Billy agreed, having seen nothing like it before, and he's been to more shows than I have. Besides confusing us, Vanta Black's grand entrance succeeded in making people interested. It was all anyone could talk about the whole night. The mystery surrounding the band was enough to make everyone insatiably curious. I have to admit, I was looking forward to seeing what they offered. The night was going well. Met our new friends, enjoyed the music of some of my favorite bands, and moshed to my heart's content. It was shaping up to be one of the best shows I'd ever attended. All my favorites had taken the stage, and the only thing that would make that night better is if Vanta Black lived up to the hype. Having not emptied my bladder all night, however, I took a bathroom break right before their set. The bathroom for Garrett's locker was actually in another building, connected to Garrett's via a long, narrow hallway. This meant a bit of a walk was needed to get there and back, which was part of the reason I hadn't gone all night. When I finally arrived at the bathroom, I noticed something weird. Among the many band stickers on the wall by the sink, there was something else. Carved into the wall was the letters VB, followed by a strange symbol. I figured that one of the Vanta Black's members had put it there. It was kind of fucked up to carve it into a wall, though, and besides, what's the purpose? Carving your band's initials and symbol into a bathroom wall isn't exactly the greatest method of promotion. I simply brushed it off and finished my business before returning to the show. Upon returning, I could hear music as it filled the room. Vanta Black had already begun their set. And from the sounds of it, they were good. Not just good, but great. Even better when I got a view of the stage. The members were dressed up in dark, brooding get-ups. Some of their clothing included gauntlets, spiked boots, chain mails, and horned helmets. The vocalists were wearing what looked like Samurai Warrior. They all had different styles, but all their clothing and armor was black. To be honest, they looked like villainous characters right out of an RPG. 
It was awesome. But then this is where things get a little weird. I was so caught up in the music and the band's appearance that I didn't notice what was going on in the room. Looking down at the crowd, I realized what everyone was doing. They each had their left arm in the air and were swinging back and forth in unison. It looked as though they were in a trance. I've been to a lot of metal shows, so I know how things should operate. Movement from the crowd is always sporadic and unpredictable. This was not the case. Everyone was perfectly synchronized. No moshing, dancing, just swaying together like zombies. Let me tell you, it was fucking creepy. After noticing the seemingly hypnotized audience, I caught up with Billy to see what was going on. I noticed him standing in the back of the crowd, so I went over to him and asked what he was doing. I received no response. I kept yelling in his ear, but he wouldn't reply. I eventually became aggravated and shook him. Nothing. No reaction. Just constant swaying. Everyone swaying. I looked over at the sound guy and the person running the concession stand. They too were moving back and forth, mesmerized by the music. I was baffled. I watched the rest of Vanta Black set from the back of the room, not knowing what the hell was going on. Eventually, they played their last song, and just like that, everyone snapped out of it. Looking dazed as ever, they all wandered out of the room and into their cars. Billy was my ride home, so I followed him. On the drive home, I mentioned to Billy that I tried to get his attention during the show. He acted like he didn't recall this, but what he did remember was Vanta Black. He would shut up about how great they were. It's all he talked about the whole ride home. He even ventured to say that they were his favorite band now. It struck me as highly unusual. I'd known Billy for years. I also knew his favorite band. He would never put another band above them, especially after only seeing them play once. I didn't voice my thoughts to Billy, though. I just wanted to go home and sleep and forget about the whole thing. And I did, until the next morning. I woke up the next day sore. My arms and legs were in pain from the night before. Moshing will do that to you. Because of this, I popped a few aspirin before starting my daily routine. Everything was back to normal. Until I checked my phone. I had a few Facebook notifications. Nothing out of the ordinary at first. A like here, a comment there. One notification, though, was an invite from Billy to like the page. Vantaplack. I then remembered the peculiar show they put on and how hypnotized my friends were. I decided to do a little research. I visited the Facebook page and checked out their music. They had one release, The Nihilist, and it was free to download and contained five songs, all of which I recognized from the previous night. One that really stood out to me was Knowledge of the Damned. This was the song they were playing when I entered the room. All songs were professionally recorded and sounded as high quality as any touring band's music would sound. I was impressed, but that wasn't what I came to the page for. I scoured the page for any answers as to what happened the night before, but I found little. The page had just been created. There were no posts or pictures. Still, they had roughly 200 likes. This was also about the number of people who had attended the show. No new band could gather likes that quickly. It was unheard of. Something still wasn't adding up. 
As I sat there completely baffled, I noticed Vance and Black make their first post. It was for a show the following day. It read, Vanta Black's Secret Show. True Followers Only. The title was odd. I clicked on it to find out more. These were the details provided. Welcome to our new belief system. This is an opportunity to show Vanta Black you are a true follower. Rules are simple. Find a Stitchian tome. This will be your ticket to the event. It also contains the event's coordinates. Tome locations are outlined below. Several locations were listed, including the Grovewood Cemetery right near my house. I didn't understand the secrecy or the meaning of the event, but I was compelled to find out more. Something wasn't right, and I wanted to know exactly what it was. I thought that perhaps this secret show would shed light on the situation. As such, I decided to find a Stygian tomb. I searched for a few hours in the cemetery before finding what I was looking for. Leaning up against one of the gravestones was a small brown leather-bound book. I picked it up and inspected it. It lacked any noticeable features aside from the black silhouette of a ram's head embossed on the front. Inside there was a single page with the show's coordinates followed by several blank ones. Despite the lack of characteristics, the book was very nice. Vanta Black was going all out for the show. It made me want to attend the event even more, if only out of pure curiosity. The next day, I punched the coordinates into a GPS app on my phone. The place was in town, but it seemed to be in the middle of the woods. This made me hesitant, but morbid curiosity outweighed my concern. I'd have to walk there, but it wasn't that big of a deal. A hike wouldn't be the worst thing for me anyway. Giving myself enough time to get there before the event started, I set off into the woods behind my house. It took nearly two hours to reach the spot. There were no trails, so I fought with branches and briars most of the time. It was hell, but I made it there in time. Upon arriving, I noticed something right off the bat. I saw no instruments or equipment. Kind of hard to play a show without those, right? What I didn't know at the time was that there would be no show. At least, not of the musical variety. The members were standing near a large tree, wearing those cloaks they adorned when first entering Garrett's. Others were showing up. I watched as they walked over to the members, handed in tomes identical to mine, and then stood in a circular formation. I followed. The circular formation was purposeful. On the ground in front of us was a large design, spray-painted red into the ground. It was a symbol that had been carved into the bathroom wall, contained in a circle. Before I could contemplate its meaning, I noticed Billy walk up and turn in his tome. I was about to wave and say hi to Billy, but quickly discarded the thought and chose not to. He looked different. Different, but familiar. It was the same look he had during Vanta Black's set. I then looked around and realized that everyone looked like that. They were all in a trance, just like they had been during the show. I was the only one out of place. In an attempt to follow the pack, I decided to sport a similar expression on my face. I had to blend in with the true followers. I couldn't risk getting kicked out, especially after I traveled so far. Shortly after I did this, the vocalist stepped forward and removed his hood. 
event was about to begin. Vanta Black's vocalist spoke with authority and conviction, reciting the following at the start of the event. Welcome, believers. We appreciate the journey you've made to get here today. We appreciate the sacrifices you've made in your lives, past, present, and future. We're here now to share the burden. We are here today to unite as one people. Are you with me? In unison, everyone replied with a loud yes. I failed to do so, but I was sure no one noticed. For roughly an hour, the vocalist continued to speak and asked for more synchronized responses. I don't remember much of what he said, as I was more focused on fitting in and fearing what might happen if my true intentions were discovered. I do, however, remember what happened toward the end of the event. It's difficult not to. At the end of the vocalist's long and drawn-out sermon, he raised his left hand and shouted, No escape! No justice! Which I recognized as lyrics from Knowledge of the Damned. The group then repeated this back. I did as well, having caught on by this point. After this, one of the other band members came over with the skull of a ram and placed it in the center of the symbol. The vocalist stepped forward until he was directly behind the skull. I didn't know what to expect. At this point, Vanta Black's vocalist called out names. Full names. How he had that information... I don't know, but when he called out a name, that person would step up to the skull and face the vocalist. Billy was the first one called. Still hypnotized, Billy walked up to the skull and held out his arm. I was confused by this. The vocalist then pulled out a dagger from within his cloak and sliced Billy's arm, allowing the blood to drip onto the skull. Billy didn't react. I did instead. I shook in fear. Was my arm going to be cut as well? What if I screamed in agony? What would they do with me if they found out I wasn't a believer? These were questions that raced through my mind as I watched my friend's blood paint the skull red. I watched in horror as the names were called and skin from each person was torn open by the focalist blade. I didn't understand, nor did I want to. I just wanted to get the hell out of there. I thought about making a run for it, but I knew I wouldn't get far with the plethora of obstacles the forest offered. Plus, I was outnumbered. It would only take one person to catch up with me and drag me back to the ceremony. I decided to stay and play along. My name was the last to be called. I hesitantly stepped forward and faced the vocalist. He stared at me for an awkward length of time before speaking. Are you a true follower? Yes, I said. He continued to observe and then spoke again. No escape, he shouted. No justice, I retorted almost instinctively. The vocalist then sliced my arm open and my blood dripped onto the skull like the others before me. I felt the color drain from my face, but I didn't react. The pain was great, but my will to live was greater. 
The vocalist smiled and allowed me to walk back to the herd. I must have played my part well. After slicing my arm open, the vocalist concluded the event by thanking everyone for their participation. I began walking home, but started running when I got far enough away from everyone. I was officially spooked. However, I was more ecstatic that I was able to make it through the event. Who knows what might have happened had I cracked under the pressure. After getting home and bandaging my arm, I sat down and took a deep breath, thankful to be alive. Vanta Black has played many shows at Garrett's Locker since their sadistic ritual in the woods. I haven't gone to any of them. I wasn't affected like everyone else was, and I think it's because of what happens at the beginning of their sets, whether it's a spell, an incantation, or a ritual. I think I missed the start of their set that night due to my impromptu bathroom break, and that is most likely what saved me. Despite not going to their shows, I pay close attention to their Facebook page. After every show, they gain more followers. After each surge of likes, they put on another secret show. I don't know what to do. I'm scared of what's happening to my friends, and I'm scared of what Vanta Black will do next. I thought of calling the cops, but I'm too paranoid. If the members found out what I was trying to do and put a stop to their antics, I could become a sacrifice in one of their rituals. I have nightmares about that day in the woods. It plays out like it did in real life. Only instead of slicing everyone's arms, he stabs them in the heart, killing them instantly. I want to run, but cannot move. After watching everyone die, the vocalist walks over to me. Just as he's about to deal the final blow, I wake up. Every single night, this happens. Why? Why? The thing that scares me the most is that I keep finding myself listening to their music. It's the only thing that seems to comfort me. And when I do, I feel the need to join them. I feel the need to be a part of their nefarious cult, and I don't know why. I'm at the end of my rope here, and I can feel myself slipping. Their lyrics keep ringing in my head, and I think they hold true. There is no escape. There is no justice. I don't think they can be stopped. And I don't think I can keep myself away from them any longer. I want the nightmares to end. I think it's time to become a true follower. My name is John. I've never murdered anyone, but I'm a notorious serial killer. I say that because I'm directly responsible for the deaths of numerous people. I know I'll never be caught. I can only imagine what you're thinking while listening to this. Though, I'm not sure it matters. The fact is, I'm not sharing this story because I feel bad about what happened, or because I have some need to get it off my chest. I've just been reflecting on the last year and decided it might prove as an interesting tale. For what it's worth, I've never considered myself a bad person. Do I have problems? Of course. Am I intentionally malicious? I don't think so. But I suppose I'm not the most trustworthy source on that. 
Everything started in January of last year. I was a high school dropout, kicked out of my parents' home at 17 and living in a shitty apartment in a bad part of town. I was working my third consecutive overtime shift at a rundown diner. The place was old, and I think its position as a historic site is the only reason people in our town even frequented the place. It made just enough to squeak by, but we seldom had the money to fix things that were obviously broken, let alone make wholesale improvements. My manager Gregory was a mean-spirited old man. When he wasn't peering at us with his hawk-like gaze, he was in the back, cursing the passage of time that stole his football-playing youth along with most of his hair. Every morning, he lumbered into the diner with a scowl that could give crocodiles goosebumps. His first order of business was generally to delegate tasks in the rudest way possible and to belittle anyone who so much as ask a question. An extremely conservative man one night, he screamed at one of the female employees because the customer had a rather disgusting comment during happy hour. How dare you come into work looking like a slut? He said in regards to her light makeup and naturally curvy body fitting tightly into our worn-out outfits. Won't you ever come to work looking like that unprofessional again? After that conversation, she took his advice and never came back. Funny how a man who, in the past, made crude remarks to other female employees and half-baked attempt to get in their pants can belittle someone for that. Suffice it to say, his creepiness and warped sense of logic and morality extended to all parts of life. I was taking a smoke break outside by the dumpster when Gregory decided to come out and meet me. He asked if he could bomb his cigarettes, and I watched him fumble with a lighter as I handed it to him. He took a long drag and let out an obnoxious exhale. And then he looked me up and down before saying, I know I said you'd only have to work these few overtimes, but I'm going to need you to pull doubles for the next couple of weeks at least. My calm demeanor was broken as I spun towards him. What? Doubles for a couple of weeks? You can't drop that, Mommy Gregory. He took another long drag and spat on the ground a little too close to my shoe. Look, Jose just quit, and Maria keeps giving me that bullshit about school. I need someone on staff or it's going to be real rough. You can't ask anyone else to at least split the time with me? You know my insomnia, Gregory. I don't think it's fair to put me in that position. No. He said sternly. I'm not asking anyone else, because I'm asking you. Anyone can cancel on me and make it look halfway legitimate, but you, you've got no life outside of this place. Plus, you need the money, and this place needs work until I can hire someone. If anything, you should be thanking me. Like everyone else, I was used to Gregory's bullying, snide remarks, and unreasonable demands. Unlike everyone else, I stayed with it for a year. You would think that he'd treat his most loyal employee with some respect, but my staying put had the opposite effect. I think he felt that because I wasn't going anywhere, he could treat me as horrible as he wanted, knowing I wouldn't do a damn thing. I argued with Gregory before. There have been times when I legitimately thought we would have to fight to settle our differences. I hated that place. I hated him. He's threatened to fire me multiple times, and as much as I would love to quit being an antisocial 18-year-old with no diploma, long history of mental health problems, and a mild drug addiction didn't present many opportunities, especially in a town without many openings in the first place. 
Shitty environments invite worse company, I suppose. Me and that diner were meant for each other in a tragically cosmic sort of way. Knowing that, all I could do was nod my head and mutter, You got it, boss, before walking back inside. That night, I got home to my small apartment, shuffled the pile of bills off my kitchen counter, and began to heat up some water for another night of instant ramen. As I watched the water boil, one of the papers with bright red lettering caught my attention from the corner of my eye. Curiously, I focused my sight on the bill, but as I read it to myself, my heart slowly began to sink, and I let out a very audible shit as I went to grab it. The bill read... Rent past due, final warning. In short, I had a week to pay up before I got evicted. The issue being, I wasn't supposed to be paid for another two weeks, and I had just gotten my paycheck, and it wasn't enough to cover my rent. Thinking about how I could have let such an important letter go unnoticed, my mind was a blur as I tried to recall the previous weed-heavy nights. I could see my hands start to shake as the stress began to eat at me. In response, I grabbed a shot of vodka to dull my senses. Sitting on the couch and letting the alcohol take effect, I grabbed my vape pen and took a long hit to silence the thought of a panic attack. But even in my intoxicated state, the thought still nagged me. The hell was I going to do? I stared at the boiling water on the stove, walked over to turn it off, and ordered a pizza using some of the dwindling funds I had in my bank account. Ultimately, it was a problem for another day. During my third day of pulling double shifts, I tried to start my beat-up sedan and was met by the sound that clearly indicated it would have to be a day where I took the bus to work. I texted Greg, but my phone often takes a while while sending messages, and I knew he might not see it until I got there. Running on three hours of sleep, I groggily made my way to the bus stop where the bus came nearly half an hour late and dropped me off a little farther than where I needed to go to get to work. The early morning debacle made me about an hour, an hour and a half late, and I was instantly met at the door by a furious Greg. He immediately dragged me into his office where he screamed at me for not being on time. I tried explaining to him that it was out of my control and that I tried to contact him. Still, he blamed me for not ensuring that I had reliable transportation and that I should have just figured it out. I'm not sure what it was, but... He seemed on edge far more than usual. When he kicked me out, I could feel an entire diner staring at me. I tried going along with my regular shift, and for the most part, I was doing well, but I could feel the fatigue starting to kick in. The only thing keeping me going was some coffee I snuck from the coffee maker, an Adderall pill I bummed off a co-worker, and the drive to make it to Friday so I could pay my rent the effects of having to do double shifts and insomnia were coming on strong. A couple of cute girls had made an order for two Caesar salads with a side of fruit. Pretty simple order, but before I could leave their table, they stopped me to chat for a little bit. It only took me a second to realize that I was being flirted with. Being flirted with is a very rare thing for me, so I was pretty stoked when it happened. Despite all the stress of the past week, it felt amazing to have an extra bit of positivity to drive me forward. In retrospect, I may have clung to that positivity too tightly. Between the exhaustion and the mild daydreams of asking one of the girls for their number and seeing where things went, a small lapse in awareness was all it took to mix up their order with another table. 
I apologized, and as I went to give the food to the correct customers, I tripped over my own feet and sent the food and dishes careening to the floor. The diner went silent, and everyone turned to look at the mess I'd made. In that silence, I heard a loud curse as Gregory came marching out of his office to inspect the incident. His eyes grew wide at the broken plates before focusing on me. He put his hands on his head dramatically and yelled, What the hell are you doing, you goddamn idiot? I was left stuttering, trying to come up with a good response. I could see the two girls stifle giggles, and I looked back to Gregory with worried eyes. Look, Greg, I'm sorry. I've been drained and stressed. It was just an accident. I'll clean it up. Goddamn right you're going to clean this shit up, he yelled from across the diner. And then he pucked his lips and marched towards me. Then you're going to get the hell out of my diner, and you're never going to come back. What? I yelled back. Because I dropped some damn dishes? It happens. I've worked my ass off for you for a year, and you treat me like this because of dishes? His eyes narrowed, and the old man looked as though he was ready to come to blows. Don't you fucking yell at me. You come in late, you fuck up orders, and as soon as you walk through those doors, I could smell the weed on you. Some of us have real issues to deal with, and you come in here claiming you're exhausted. He gave a fake chuckle. I don't care who you are. You don't come into my restaurant, high, and then try and pass it off as being tired. Truth is, I've wanted you gone for a while now. Last weekend, I found someone to take your spot. A little earlier than I thought, but you've shown me today that I really don't need your loser ass around here. Tears started to well up in my eyes. My voice cracked as I tried to plead with him. Gregory, please. I need this job. My rent... It's due Friday, and if I don't get paid, I'll be evicted. Please don't do this. I I promise I'll do better. This time his chuckle seemed more genuine. (laughs) Paid by Friday? No. I'll give you your paycheck when I'm ready. What happens in your personal life is none of my concern, so long as it doesn't bleed into your work. Obviously it has. Now get out, John. The diner fell silent again as he walked back into his office and slammed the door. I sat for a moment, feeling as though the world was judging me. I looked back at the two girls and the look of disgust they had on their faces. They were staring at a loser, a druggie, a child without a home. Punched the ground in frustration. I was done. I looked outside and saw the gloomy sky show signs of rain. I could have taken the bus home, but I didn't care. I could have taken the bus home, but I just didn't care. I made the long walk home in the shower, accepting it as part of my punishment for being a stain on existence. It was my fault, right? I'd put myself in that position. Fucked up as it was, I was resigned to my fate by the time I got home. I figured... Why let the universe kick me around as much as possible? My parents always called me a mistake, and now I was being shown why. I flopped into my couch, and I made the new routine emotion of reaching for my wax pen to let the THC take me into a momentary place of bliss. I stopped and thought, Why should I accept fate as it is? 
Why the hell would I let a horrible man like Gregory treat me like trash? My whole life, I'd been pushed around and stepped on, and I just accepted the role of being everyone else's punching bag. And for what? I never set out to hurt anyone, and yet everyone else wanted to hurt me. I couldn't do that anymore. It was time I took matters into my own hands. That night, I made a plan to break into the diner safe. If Gregory was there, I would deal with him in whatever way I saw fit. I knew from the onset that I'd be the immediate suspect in a robbery, but the fact is, I didn't care. I was desperate, plus winter was coming, and my options were limited when faced with being out in the snow. The next morning, I went and got everything I needed. A BB gun, hammer, rope, duct tape, and a crowbar. Five minutes before the diner closed, I drove to the empty lot, down to the small bottle of tequila I kept in my glove compartment, and then I waited. Twenty... 30 minutes just to be sure. When I was satisfied no one else was coming in after the last car the night shift had left, I was confident it would just be him and me all night. I donned a cheap wolf mask I found in my closet, slid the BB gun into my front pocket, and the hammer in my back. With the rest of the supplies in my backpack, I made my move. I kicked open the front door and immediately walked to the back office. I furiously pounded on the door to coax the old man out, and when that ugly, vile man opened up to see what was happening, I immediately swung at his face, dropping him to the floor. And I took the crowbar from my backpack and swung down at his knees. The apparent cracking gave me a sense of satisfaction that I never felt in my life. I tied him up with the rope and duct-taped his hands and feet together. The old man cried on the ground, asking what it was that I wanted. I pulled the gun from my front pocket and waved it in his face. I made sure to stare into his soulless black eyes. A year of torment and hate stared back at me from the void. I couldn't help but make it personal. He needed to know that his actions caused this, that he made me a victim and he was now paying the price. I pulled off my mask and stated, Where's my fucking money, Greg? There was an audible gasp. John, what the hell are you doing, boy? I was starting to get frustrated. Answer the damn question, Greg. Where's my fucking money? He spat at me and shook his head. Well, you're not getting it now, you goddamn idiot. You messed up, John. You're going to jail for a very long time. I pushed the gun closer to his face and he screamed, Get that gun out of my fucking face. He then took a breath to calm himself down. You know, maybe I should be thankful it was just you. We both know you're a disturbed loser. The whole town does. And a disturbed loser like you wouldn't have the balls to shoot me or anyone else. You want to bet? I do. He laughed, that annoying know-it-all laugh. You're a little shit whose own parents couldn't stand the sight of you. Sure, you'd sucker punch an old man, but now you have to look me in the eyes and really contemplate what you're about to do. You're too pathetic. For a moment, my finger played with the trigger, contemplating whether or not to shoot him with the gun I knew wouldn't kill him. In a sense, he was right. I did sucker punch him. I brought a fake gun, knowing I couldn't shoot him with a real one. Everything was rushing back again. Pain, darkness, despair, being a fucking loser. 
I screamed and threw the gun down, pulling my hair. I paced back and forth, cursing myself. Shit, shit, shit. What did I do? Out of the corner of my eye, I could see him grinning. Untie me, John. Now! And maybe I'll give you a five-second head start before I call the cops. Boys, I can't wait to see them execute you for being as disturbed as you are. There was that word again. Disturbed. There he was, tied up with his knees broken, and he was still belittling me. How could he still have power over me? I stopped. Took a deep breath and let the realization hit me like a tsunami crashing right onto the shore. I'm not right. And that's okay. I casually walked over to where the old man was tied up, bent down next to him and coldly stated, You know, being disturbed isn't a crime, though the actions of the disturbed often are. And you're right. I'm very disturbed. I flipped him over, straddled his chest, and wrapped my hands around his neck. I felt no remorse. I simply wanted to feel this man's life drain out of his body, and with every second of him struggling more and more to breathe, I could feel the power shifting more and more towards me. For the first time in our relationship, I was in control. I decided what happened to him. But just as I was about to feel the euphoria of Gregory's death wash over me, an unimaginable force sent me back flying. I was dazed for a moment, thinking the old man had somehow managed to conjure up some last bits of immense strength. I prepared my hammer and resigned myself to bludgeoning him to death. But when I saw what lay before me, my jaw and hammer fell to the floor. Kneeling before me was a figure. Its broad frame was covered in inky black skin. It stood on large, three-toed, webbed feet, and its wide, meaty hands were tipped in talons that each had to be at least ten inches long. But the most shocking was its face. It was utterly smooth, save for two small eyes that narrowed on me, and a row of slits forming what appeared to be a smile. Behind each slit, I could see rows of sharp teeth. When it stood erect, I could see it had a slight hunch. But it still had to be no less than eight feet tall, even with that. We locked eyes for a moment before it turned around to face Gregory. I watched in horror as it tore into Gregory's body. Pieces of flesh and bone were strewn about the small diner as I watched it flay open his chest and ribcage with ease before ripping off his jaw and one of his arms. It then flung the carcass against the wall with such force the impact left the crater. But the most curious thing of all was that Gregory's body seemed to decay in real time. I watched as his skin instantly dried out and maggots seemed to be consuming him from the inside mere moments after his death. The hulking figure spun back around and kneeled in front of me. I scurried back and screamed in terror. I knew this thing could have just as quickly killed me as it killed him. The fear inside me grew every second. I had no idea if it had something planned or if it merely wanted to go on a violent rampage. It flattened out its hand in front of me, and only then I was able to grasp the actual size of the thing. 
If it wanted to, it could wrap two fingers around my entire torso and carry me in its palms. I screamed, get away from me, while I shoved my eyes tight, waiting for it to crush me in its massive palm. But instead, what bubbled up from the inky black surface was cash. It motioned for me to take it, and only hesitating for a moment, I stuffed the stacks into my bag, wanting to thank the creature for what it had done, but I didn't know what to say. Luckily to this day, I ended up not having to say anything. Even now, I'm not sure how we communicate. If the voice is real or in my head, I'll never know, but what I heard was an ethereal-sounding echo that simply said, I know you have questions. They won't all be answered right now. But for now, just know that I'm your guardian angel, John, and I'll always protect you. All I could do was mutter out a weak, Thank you. With a blink of an eye, it was gone. I scrambled to my feet, and after taking notice of the dead body for a second time, I realized I needed to get the hell out of there. The next morning after paying my rent, I switched on the news and saw that they were talking about the incident at the diner. Apparently all the cameras had been switched off, and the police found no evidence of foul play. The rope and tape had disappeared, and investigators were convinced some identified animal, likely a bear, broke in and mauled Gregory. They noted that the safe was empty, but concluded it was a separate incident from the mauling, considering it hadn't appeared to be broken into. I couldn't believe I'd gotten away with the impossible. I remember laughing to myself in disbelief, but it was soon replaced with a sudden realization. Gregory wasn't the only person that had done me wrong. No. Many, many people in my life were responsible for the shitty situation I was in. A lot of those people living good, happy lives despite taking their turn stepping on mine. They were going to pay dearly. They had to suffer for their transgressions. I had some money remaining from last night and figured maybe it was time I got out of the shitty town and did some traveling. By the next week, I packed up the little I had and started traveling. The most valuable commodity I owned and the only thing I truly needed was the will to kill. So long as I had that, my horrifying friend would always take care of the rest. Many people have likely seen me around. Maybe someone reading this story. I fade into the background for the most part. And that's a good thing. Perhaps. Maybe you shouldn't want to be around somebody like me. I move in the darkness. And when you know I'm there, it's already too late. I've gone around exacting the kind of justice that I think is necessary for the past two years. With every new body, the closer I get to true happiness... I don't know what the end goal is. Maybe I'll keep going until the pain goes away. Perhaps I'll stop and settle down. But for now, there's so much more work that needs to be done. And I'll do it with a smile on my face. One that mirrors out of my guardian angel. And angel, to this day, I still have a healthy respect and fear for. It's always good to keep in mind that our relationship is built on a foundation of pain. For now, we keep peace, but... Anyone should know, personal demons can hurt you just as quickly as they can anyone else. When it stalks me in my dreams, watches me walk down the street, or stares back from my reflection in the mirror, I know what it wants. More death, more pain. For now, 
I'm happy to oblige. But I'm terrified of what happens when I can't any longer. At the end of the day, I suppose everyone has demons. Some just happen to be more apparent than others. <laughs>